0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back of house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and in today's episode, we're joined by Carl Schwallow, who is linked to a few of the stories already shared by previous (laughs) guests like Don Pritchard and Heather Brace and others. So I'm super excited to have Carl on today. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic, Christian.
0: How are you? Well, I'm doing all right, all things considered, during these crazy times. Mm -hmm. May I ask where you're joining us from?
1: I'm presently, I'm actually in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and I have just finished up working uh, a position at a a local country club here. And am looking for my working on my next adventure.
0: What is the industry that you're in? You mentioned that you're working at a country club. And has that industry been significantly impacted by COVID?
1: It has taken a, it's, it's food and beverage operations. So it's part of the the major component of the hospitality industry that has taken a huge hit. Uh, there's a lot of friends of mine that I have that are were looking for possibly how to translate our uh, capabilities from food and beverage and hospitality guest service, employee satisfactions and things like that into potentially into other industries and into other locations so that is it is we have had a, a massive impact on with the uh, COVID 19 and the coronavirus well i feel your pain
0: i'm in the event space and we're also in a bit of a pickle right yeah, now right. trying to figure out what in the heck we're going to do it's really really difficult when you work in a business that requires on people socializing yes and getting together to generate your revenues and so I've got a
1: got a few irons in the fire right now and I tell you the uh one of the questions that I get asked the most uh when they see the uh Salt Lake organizing committee for the Olympics on my resume that gets I get get a lot of questions on that and get to get to tell a few stories that are that are relevant to it. So it makes it very interesting.
0: It is funny, people think, oh Olympic games that's so amazing. It's so cool you get to be involved in the Olympic <laughs> games and You know what? They're right. It is amazing. It's great to be involved in an event like the Olympic Games. It's really, really an incredible experience to work on one of those. So, Carl, why don't you tell us, tell us a little bit about the journey that you took to Salt Lake. What were you doing before working for the organizing committee? And how did you find yourself in Salt Lake City?
1: Well, I came out of, uh, I had just graduated, uh, come out of grad school. And I had previously worked with Don Pritchard on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, uh, several years before, and he made a phone call. Uh, he's one of the people, you know, in my phone, whenever his name pops up, I, I mean, now it pops up on cell phones, but then it didn't. But when Don makes a phone call, you're just asking, hey, where do I need to be? Where do I need to be? When do I need to get there? Because it's going to be something terrifically interesting to do. And he had uh, he had been hired several years prior. Uh, this was, I got the phone call in uh, late 2000. And he had been hired several years prior to run the food operations for the Olympics. And he was looking for people to fill positions. Um, he actually had me come up, uh, he contacted me, I wanna say in the fall of 2000, and I was gonna be working, I was working over the winter in Las Vegas. So he actually had me drive up to meet several members of the team, You know, to see if it was someplace I was gonna like to be, to check out Salt Lake City. And it was, you know, I hit it right off with the team. It was a, you know, an inter- interesting, interesting drive up. Um, you know, one of the trips where the instructions I was given was to, you know, as you're going through Salt Lake, you know, when you get to Salt Lake City, get off on Sixth South and head to. They were in a, they were having a group get together at the Trolley Wing Company on Trolley Square. You know, get on Sixth South, head over to the Trolley Wing Company. You'll be able to find. You'll come and find us where we've basically taken the place over. I didn't understand that Six South was the slang term in Salt Lake City for Six Hundred South. So I went through Salt Lake City. Next thing I knew, I was in a, you know, I was headed up to uh, Ogden, and you know, made a you made a quick call on the cell phone and said, "Hey, I think I missed the turn." You know, I had the same person give me the same instructions coming south. Uh, next thing I know, I was headed to Lehigh again, and finally, when I got a third, when I got a second person on the phone, they explained to me that I was looking for Six Hundred. South, you know, I hadn't understood the grid system for the roads and was able to finally, I think it was, a, I think about a, added about an hour, 15 minutes of me seeing some other parts of Utah that I hadn't expected to see in some of them twice uh, before I actually caught up with the team at the, uh, at the trolley wing company over at Trolley Square. And it was a, it was exactly the group of people I was expecting. Just a lot of people from a lot of diverse backgrounds that were uh, going to be a lot of fun to work with. And I was I'd already pretty much been sold, but the meeting a uh, significant amount of the team at that point absolutely sold me on what I was going to be doing for the next year after I graduated from, after I uh, did my graduation from uh, grad school.
0: Well, there are a lot of interesting things there. Number one, here in Salt Lake, me being a local, we take a bit of pride in ourselves. Hey, our grid system is so easy to navigate, but you're right. You've got to be a little familiar with the terminology. If, you, if you're if you not familiar <laughs> with that, uh, you can be led astray relatively quickly. The other thing is actually a question, which is what were you doing in graduate school and was the work that you were coming to do in Salt Lake in any way related to your studies?
1: Absolutely. I was uh, actually in hospitality school at Cornell and with a uh, concentration in food and beverage operations. And I was working for one of the uh, I'd been sent on an internship the previous year to Las Vegas. Uh, The school connected me with somebody that they thought I'd really hit it off with in uh at paris valley's hotel a casino down there never been to las vegas in my life and i got there and i absolutely loved it uh it was you know just the amount of people i got to interact with the amount of people i got to see from you know an international crowd and that's also what hit with salt lake city you know the numbers of people that i got to meet once i started uh you know the food beverage operations at the olympics was a was a was right off the bat you know exactly what i wanted to get my hands on and then working with the team and the people that I got to meet from around the world, people that had done these events, you know, people that were lifetime people that were doing, you know, just went from one event to the other and went around the world doing this and just getting the international culture in a, in a city, you know, as beautiful as Salt Lake, Salt Lake was, especially in the wintertime, you know, just the. You know how gorgeous it was and being back in the mountains i actually was born in great falls montana and being back out west and you know this the wasatch mountains but you know being in the rocky mountains and things like that was you know with all the beauty and the outdoor things to do was just right up my alley So
0: you come out here to the beautiful city of Salt Lake City, as Juan mm-hmm. Antonio Samaranch said when he announced the winner. What is your role aside from going and having wings at the Trolley Wing Company uh, with your colleagues?
1: So I was the I was hired as the venue uh, food services manager for Soldier Hollow, which was the uh, biathlon, cross country, and Nordic combined components, and we literally put in a you know, out in Heber, you know, out in Heber city, uh, we built a compound and put in a food service operation that was going to handle 10,000 people a day, uh, during the Olympics, 10,000 people a day for 17. Well, actually technically for us, it was 18 days because we had some competition that started prior to the opening ceremonies. And we had to bring it out of nothing there was a lodge there was a beautiful lodge out there but that was very limited and we had to put in compounds put in tents you know vip tents and media tents you know we had a significant we were the uh secondary athlete dining uh was out in soldier hollow because it was you know for the teams that were closer to soldier hollow versus closer down you know to the university of utah and so we had to you know, basically build some, build a compound from scratch, you know, figure out how we were going to get water in, you know, how are we going to keep, you know, for me, it was how to, you know, trying to explain to people why I had to run a refrigerated truck on such a cold venue and let them know that it was to keep things at at 38 degrees so that they didn't, you know, freeze overnight when the, when the temperature dropped down to, you know, minus 10. And, you know, I, I, it was something that was a very much a physical challenge that was just one heck of a lot of fun for me to do trying to figure out how we were going to get stuff in there, where we were going to put it, you know, and, you know, and I had some really great, uh, really great corporate partners that we work with between Coca-Cola, Compass Group, Anheuser-Busch and the like, you know, they did an absolutely fantastic job with us. I want to
0: come back to something you said about the scale. I think it was on the order of 10,000 spectators. You've got athletes, uh, Mm -hmm. media, workforce, yes, all these different stakeholders that are convening there and eating every day. And you had competition going on throughout, even starting a day before the ceremony. Had you ever fed that many people before? Had you ever dealt with something on that scale for that length uh, no, time? No, I had not. So what was that like coming in there and thinking, oh, my God, I got to figure out how in the heck am I going to feed 10,000 people a
1: day? Well, we had a good plan. We worked with we were working with enough people. uh, There were enough people that were on the venue that had done events like this before that knew, uh, you know, and and we were there. You know, I got there a year before the event. So it wasn't like I literally walked into it. But in talking to the people that had the experience. You know, they let us know this is what it's going to be like. It sounds like it's an overwhelming amount of people. However, you're going to have the companies that have done this before. Uh, You know, Coca-Cola is used to this. Compass groups are used to this. You know, it's concessions. A lot of it was concessions dining. And you just had to make sure you had the right people in the right place. And then, you know, we trained the volunteers. My biggest concern was I was getting a volunteer workforce that had not, for the most part, had really not worked in food and beverage operations. So I had to, you know, them, I had to have them trained and, you know, have them know what to do. And that was one of the best, one of the most amazing parts of the Olympic uh, component was when we actually went through and saw how many people volunteered and how many people we had to choose from, or, um, you know, so, you know, the amount of people that we had to choose from that wanted to just be part of the Olympic, events just to make sure that it went off well. And it was, I mean, we had thousands of thousands of people to pick from. And, you know, we had some, you know, it was for me, it was just picking people by personality. And we had, everybody showed up, everybody made sure that they came in, everybody showed up, everybody had a smile on their face. We had people coming in at 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning to get things kicked off. And it was incredible. You know, we just had everybody, everybody was, was willing to help. Everybody was willing to step in and, and do whatever we needed to do to get done, you know, to get what we needed to get done. And it was just Absolutely magnificent.
0: In the end of the day, how many volunteers did you end up using there in food and beverage?
1: I think I had, if I remember correctly, I had about thirty-five or forty volunteers. Uh, we also had the, you know, the team from Compass brought their people in, the ones that were running cash registers and actually doing the sales. And we were, you know, we were making the coffee and setting up the, you know, running the tent. You know, we were the ones that were manning the VIP tents and, you know, making sure that the Coke machines were all full for, you know, the athletes' village component. Um, you know, we were just, you know, we were kind of doing a lot of the gopher stuff, you know, making sure that we had, uh, you know, items that went from point A to point B, you know, the volunteer tent where everybody came in, you know, the volunteer and staff dining tent was a big one. You know, you wanted to make sure that you had plenty of coffee, you know, especially plenty of coffee for everybody. And, uh, you know, the beef especially, and, uh, you know, just making, you know, a lot of it was making sure that we were taking care of the people that we going to be taking care of the people and, you know, setting up so that the volunteers had plenty of good food to eat and keeping them energized and, you know, having some fun, you know, we, we found a way to play a lot of games with the Wahoos and Wahoos were, you know, if you, if we had a little competition and you did something and you were the person that came in last, you were going to get the more, you know, the more that you, the, the farther down the line that you came in, the more Wahoos you had to take home with you and things like that. So we had a, you know, we, we looked at how we could have a good time with what we were doing and keeping people energized and, and engaged.
0: I love these perverse incentives. <laughs> the <laughs> worse you do, the more you get. Here you go. Well, we
1: that were, that we tells were, you something yeah. about the Wahoos. <laughs> well, we were, we were building four. we had enough boxes. We were building forts out of the boxes and we were having a good time with them. So but we we made it we made it we made it a lot of fun and there you know there were a lot of you know what what I got to what I really enjoyed and especially with the team that we had was just the international flair for everybody that was there, and especially with um, being over with the you know cross country and biathlon and nordic combined those were not sports that the americans were very you know we're, were going to medal and podium at but the amount of international people you know seeing the, the the norwegians come in and the vikings and the and the danes and the fin, you know the people from finland and and sweden that were there and it was just fantastic i mean we had the royalty you know we had the um royal houses From those countries in our VIP areas, which were just a lot of fun, you know, getting to teach, uh, you know, uh, one of the queens of, I believe, um, Norway, when she asked me for a a knife and fork to eat a hot dog, and I was able to show her how to eat a, you know, certified Angus beef hot dog and how, you know, it was finger food, it was more like a sandwich, and she'd never done that before. So getting to, you know, some of those little stories like that on a daily basis were, were just one heck of a lot of fun.
0: A knife and fork with a with a hot dog. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. My, my children tease me because I don't really like to eat with my hands too much. And so I eat a lot of things with knife and fork, like pizza, for example, <laughs> but not a hot dog. It goes in a bun, and I can keep my hands relatively clean. So, yep. I'd love to see someone eating a hot dog with a knife and fork. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, she did. She did it. She was. A, she was a terrifically good sport, and you know, took care. Did it. Did it right away. And
0: now you can send her some Joey Chestnut videos and see how people eat 70 hot dogs in uh, 12 minutes or something.
1: Yeah, I no, uh, I tell you, uh, after I left the Olympics, we had a, I was working for Harrah's Casinos. And we did one of, the, one of the stops for a hot dog eating, a national hot dog eating contest with some of those. I don't know if Joey Chestnut was there, but I know some of the other big people that were in the eating. And it was, I don't ever want to be behind the scenes on one of those again. It was just, it it just doesn't look like a lot of fun to me. So I'll, t- I'll take one hot dog. I'll take one or two hot dogs at a time.
0: It sounds so horrible. I don't even want you to describe it because nope. I just don't want that mental image in my mind. So, yes, I very much would be happy to avoid the back of house yes. <laughs> when it comes to a competitive eating contest. And quite honestly, I don't even need to be in the front of house.
1: I, I don't. I, I just want to see. OK, put a picture up of them what they're not eating and what what they ate. and That's it. That's fine. Now we could have had competitive eating on Wahoos and then, you know, that might, that might've been a lot of fun. Well, I
0: have to ask you about the forts were the forts actually ever activated. I mean, did you have like actual snowball fights and you were protected with the forts or, or were they just nice structures to look at?
1: We just, we just had a fun, we, we just kind of said, you know, Hey, what can, we've got these boxes. And it was one of the days it was not, we had uh, cleared some snow out. So we weren't putting them in the snow. Uh, We did the snowball fights, you know, we had snowball fights all the time, but those were later on, but we didn't want to actually ruin the boxes of the Wahoos and because I was going to have to pick them up and put them back in a truck. But uh, we just put them like on our loading dock. We just stacked them up to see, you know, how much we we just were having, you know, in some of our downtime, we had some, a little bit of, we were trying to have as much fun with them as we possibly could. So now the snowball fight, we had some legendary snowball fights on our venue as well and had, uh, we had a good time. And if anybody that was walking by the, uh, my my food and beverage compound was the second uh, biggest compound on at Soldier Hollow behind the uh, the guys in logistics were right next to me. And whenever – if you were walking across your compound, you were fair game for somebody to uh, hit you with snowballs or throw snowballs at people. And it was – we didn't aim for anything bad. We were aiming for legs or something like that so that somebody wasn't going to get – but we had a lot of, you know, a uh, bunch of us that wanted to act like, uh, you know, it brought out the inner child in a lot of us uh, to have a, a constant supply of really great snowball snow.
0: <laughs> the greatest snow on Earth inspires the greatest snowball fights on Earth. Sounds yes. like.
1: Yes, <laughs> I love it.
0: OK, tell us a little bit more about delivering food and beverage services in an outdoor Winter Olympic venue. What was that like at Soldier Hollow? You mentioned some things with refrigeration to keep food from freezing, but you know, what were some of the challenges, and how did you resolve those challenges?
1: Well, we put a lot of uh, we put a lot of work in uh, for us leading up to leading up to the Olympics. We had several uh, test events, so we did uh, the Gold Cup. Um, we had the uh, U.S. National Selection, uh, um, basically the Selection Games leading up to building the teams for the uh, for the American teams in in the for the Olympics. So we had a lot of practice. And for us, it was a lot of we had to be out there very early in the morning because there were significant limits on moving uh, anything across the venue. Once they once they opened the gates for the spectators to come in, uh, your avenues of access to a lot of places were completely cut off. And if you had to, you know, you you learned really quickly to make sure to get what you needed into each of the areas before we started for the day. And it, it just, it started as a, it was just a very early day uh, for me specifically. I was generally on the venue. Uh, I was usually one of the first people through the Sally port going on to the venue. And I was there by usually no later than 5.30 because we opened the gates, I think it's 7.30 or eight. Uh, just because of, with, with cross country and biathlon, Uh, especially it's a huge for the people that follow those events around the world. It's like a, uh, it's like a huge party for them. You know, they bring tents and they camp out in fields near where the events are and they want to be on the venue and part of the party and, you know, just having a great time and leading up with all the energy, you know, hours before the events actually start. So we had to, it was a lot of logistic planning, making sure that we had the, pieces and pl- you know the actual food stuff and what we needed in place before anything opened up and then we would have you know we had the capability of something you know if we ran short of something you know you literally had a hand carry you know you were going to be taking something by hand through the walkways on the venue to get it to where your spaces were and it was just a lot of it was a lot of you know what the way that don put it uh several weeks ago was it was it was you know three and a half years of planning for 17 days of improvisation, where we had a good idea of what we were going to have to do, but depending on the day and how many people were there, you may have to switch it up and improvise a little bit. Um, but it was just a, you know, making sure that we had our ducks in a row. We had the uh, foodstuffs on the venue that we needed to have. And then we were ready to go for when people came in the door out there, we had the uh, Western experience. So we actually had like reenactments, uh, you know, what, one of the things that I could see from my compound, we actually had a, uh, a bison herd. A uh, small bison herd had been brought from Antelope Island and, uh, you know, in Great Salt Lake. They had brought in several bison that they had behind two fences so that they couldn't get any connection. Any, uh, you know, people couldn't get close to them. And then we actually had uh, reenactors out there that had a it was like a small Western, basically a Western experience from the I want to say from the it was uh a look into what a Western encampment would have been, uh, back in these, uh, like 1870s. So we had, you know, kids, people cooking over campfires and making, doing all sorts of, it was just a really interesting part of the cultural, uh, the cultural component of the Olympics uh, was out there. And it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun to watch, you know, to be able to see that.
0: Well, it's funny, several people have mentioned that, uh, we've had Ray Grant on, who talked about it from a culture perspective and a couple of people who worked out in those venues that, thought that was really cool what was done out there in soldier hollow and i think it's tomorrow maybe it's tomorrow we have phil jordan
1: on and uh i tell you what phil is a he was he was fantastic to work with he was a uh he's one of he's actually somebody that i've kept up with i've i've come i've i've met up with him in um in las vegas i went to las vegas right after the olympics and so did phil he was actually the person that uh he was doing the design and build out for, uh, over at Caesar's palace for Celine Dion's. Um, when they actually put in the, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember what exactly they called it, but when, when they put in Celine Dion's theater, Phil actually did the build out and was the person that was in charge of that. His, his, uh, his background was in, um, like large scale theatrical events and things like that. So the Western experience and those components that were out there were, were absolutely up his alley. And he did a, uh, he did a fantastic job out there he and his team uh, Janine um uh, Janine Cromie and uh and Andy Williams as the they were the 1 2 and 3 for the event side and they did a they did a fantastic job keeping people on task and keeping people coordinated and things like that so they were it's it's good that you've got him coming on he was he was absolutely spectacular to work for
0: yeah, I'm super excited to have him on and hear the stories from his perspective as well. Now, I want to come back to the food and service or the food and beverage service there in Soldier Hollow. We've talked a lot about the foodstuffs, but there's a lot of infrastructure that's required to deliver food and beverage on a venue, and particularly an outdoor venue. you you've got a compound there, but it's a lot of work to set that up. you've got power that you got to figure out. And mm-hmm. so you have a lot of energy requirements and you've got a lot of a kitchen equipment that needs to be installed. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just kind of run down that for us, uh, what that was like trying to set all that up? Well,
1: once again, that, that came under the, uh, the pre-planning, we actually, our big, our big issue was actually a uh, power requirements, uh, because we were literally, you know, being in a, in a, in a state park, uh, they didn't have a lot of power brought in. So we were, I mean, our biggest, that was our biggest issue and our biggest limit was we had to take a look at what we were going to be able to have for, you know, we're looking at Coca-Cola Visi coolers, you know, for each, like when you, when you had a VIP tent, if it was, you went by the square footage of the area that you had and what you were going to have to have, you had to have, like, for example, you know, two, uh, you know, if you had two concession stands or a double concession stand, there was a kind of a standard that we had. So we went through, just went through a checklist. This is what you have to have for, you know, uh, combi ovens and uh, you know, busy coolers, combi ovens, um, you know, the, the, uh, Pia Pona sales systems, the lighting and everything else. And we just went down a checklist and it got to the point with the, especially with the budgeting. And for us, it was a lot of electrical budgeting because we, I think we had every, we worked with a company called Agreco Greco with generators. And I think we had every single available Agreco generator in the United States, From the, i want to say from west of the mississippi was coming to the olympics and we weren't able it was to the point where we were not going to be able if you needed one more um you know one more amp of power you weren't going to be able to get it so we were our our limitation was on what we could get for power uh for heating and things like that and then it was uh you know we just literally had a we had a uh kind of a template for each area that we were laying out and it went across for the outdoor venues uh you know it went across um you know same for similar things up at snow basin if they have a tent that was a particular size this is exactly what you're going to get and we built basically built them in by power components and we loaded you know loaded the equipment in giant checklist of what equipment we were supposed to have and then working with uh, compass and coca-cola they had their guys that came in and actually did the placement they were you know the the, the team from compass um, was going to you know they were the ones that were going to be running you know they were going to be doing the cooking they were going to be running the areas so they knew exactly how they needed how to set things up and then it was uh, some of it was you know if somebody came to me and said hey we need another and i would have to be the person telling them I It doesn't, we don't, we don't have the capability to do that. We've got exactly what we have. So, you know, we have to, we, we we may do in some places. And then, uh, you know, the only issue, the only major issue that I had is I had one area that we couldn't get enough heat in. And I had one hand washing station that was right, uh, kind of front and center that would freeze overnight. And by the time the sun came, when the sun came out and everything warmed up the next day, and the, the tank got a little bit warmer, it would uh, it would unfreeze. But that was the only issue that we had. Is I had I had one portable hand washing station that wouldn't function right off the bat in the morning, but by the afternoon when we had a lot of people in there, it was perfectly fine. So, and I and I tell you, we had one of the other components that we had in a group that really did a good job with us was we worked with uh, Salvation Army comes out, and when there's large scale events like this. They uh, let us have um, or they brought their um, resources to bear as well, and they were terrifically helpful on uh, spectator from spectator water program. So for all the outdoor venues, uh, the Salvation Army had a big impact on us being able to provide, you know, complimentary water, free water for uh, people that were coming up to watch the venues. And they did a really, they were really fantastic to work with as well.
0: Well, Don told us the story of the Salvation Army post games, uh, the legacy that was left there, which I thought was wonderful. And I have to say, if your biggest problem is you have a hand sanitizing station that is not fully functional (laughs) when it's too cold, then things are running pretty well. Now you've been very, very patient with me answering all of my questions, but I know that you've given a lot of thought to this and I yeah. want to make sure that we do your stories justice. so uh, why don't we go to the things that you've got on your list?
1: Well I tell you so what it what I what I've said before and what what I really enjoyed with the Olympic uh, you know was getting to know as many people as I got to know and and the worldwide, you know just the the cross-cultural, we had a lot of people that came from the Olympics, uh, the Olympics in Sydney. Uh, so we and we ended up picking up a lot of people from Australia, that came in to work with us and getting to meet, uh, meet, and make friends with so many people from across the uh, basically across the world was great. I have one. So we hired for food operations. Um, we hired a uh, guy named Jake Benson that none of us had ever met before. He was actually Australian, so he was coming from Australia. And it was somebody that uh, Don Pritchard knew and had met. So we were, you know, as he was filling out, as he was filling the positions that he needed to fill for food operations, you know, we heard this person was coming from Australia. He's a great guy. Well, he didn't have any... When he was coming from Australia, he didn't have a set address yet. So he shipped uh about three or four boxes three or four good good-sized boxes of clothes to his cubicle in the uh slot headquarters building and so suddenly we, we were making jokes. All of a sudden, these four box, three or four boxes got delivered to the cubicle next to mine, um, you know, that had his name on it and said, you know, clothes and everything else. So we were, you know, we were kind of joking that we were you know, maybe he shipped maybe he saved on the airplane ticket and he was going to ship himself in a box the next day. And We knew he was in about two or three days. He was going to be coming in to meet us. So. We wanted to, you know, as part of the kind of along the lines of some of the practical jokes and fun that we had with the uh, cubicles and then that area, we opened one of the boxes that he had labeled t-shirts. So we wanted to get an idea of what kind of person he was. So we pulled a few of his t-shirts out and we really liked them. So the day that he showed up to work after he came through human resources processing, uh, when he came up to our location on the 15th floor in the building, uh, he walked up and each one of us was wearing one of his shirts. And it took him <laughs> it took him about it took about the third person that he got introduced to. And when he saw I was at my my cubicle was across from uh, my friend Tracy Johnson's. And Tracy is a slight of a. Jake was a, a an average size guy. I'm a kind of a two one to two XL so the t-shirt I was wearing was very tight on me and the t-shirt she was wearing was very, you know, it looked like a uh, a night shirt on her and that was about the time that he realized that we were that we had his t-shirts on and he he erupted in laughter and thought that that was one of the funniest jokes that he had ever seen and we knew that he was going to be perfect to work with us and we took him around it was his I think it was I want to say it was his first time being in the United States and he had an absolute ball. I mean, we ran around, uh, you know, one of the things that we also got to do in addition to the people was just the uh, the location, and the beautiful places in Utah. So we took, you know, Jake was on, uh, you know, we went and we did Moab and we did Arches National Park and we did, you know, Mount uh, Timpanogos and we went up in the canyons and cross-country skiing and all sorts of, you know, snowshoeing, uh, you know, snowmobiling and all sorts of things that we got to do was such a beautiful landscape. And, you know, but that was, that was one of the, one of the stories that was one that I had almost forgotten about was putting on, uh, you know, basically having, having somebody show up to work, and you know, he'd made the mistake of sending his clothes in three days before. And we were each wearing that he was a terrifically good sport about it. And we had a, he he became a he. And literally by that night had become. I mean, he just fit right in with all of us. You know, with the, where we were looking. You know, where we did not have a problem finding fun things to do.
0: Carl, oh, I love the T-shirt story. That's so funny that you guys all put on everybody, or you put on uh, your colleagues' T-shirts, and he shows up at that day in the office. I think it's amazing. I understand that's not the only clothing related story you've got.
1: <laughs> well, we had a uh, one of our co-workers and uh, you know, it's one of the things where we're always looking for a way to play, you know, some sort of practical joke and keep people, keep people engaged. And one of our coworkers on regularly on Fridays, uh, this is my friend Paul Pandola, would wear a he would wear we did kind of a casual day. So he would do blue jeans, a white button down shirt and a blue uh, blazer or sport coat of some sort. So we had moved out to venue being venue specific. So we were out on our venues, but we were coming back for a Friday afternoon presentation and we all got together and decided, you know, for the entire food and beverage operations team, we got, we all got together and we were all going to wear, we all wore blue jeans, white button down shirt, and the blue blazer into this meeting room. And Paul was, uh, Paul was one of the last, we got there early And I think about 10 or 15 minutes early. So we'd all be sitting in this room when Paul got there. And the only thing that made it funnier than all of us showing up dressed exactly the same way was that was the one Friday that Paul came in at something absolutely completely different. And we took it. We've got one of one of the great pictures that I have is us together as a group where every one of us is in a blue blazer, a white button down shirt and a pair of jeans. And I, I'd have to I'd have to dig the picture out because I can't remember what Paul. I think Paul wore, like a, a, a polo shirt and khaki pants and something else. And that made it it was just literally a we were we were we delayed the the beginning of the meeting because we were all laughing so hard that that had come out that way. But we were always looking to, you know, we could have some fun while we were at work and putting a lot of hard work in. You know, those were just some of the stories that really stuck out with, uh, you know, finding, finding things that we could do to keep everybody energized and have a lot of fun while we were working.
0: Okay. I have to ask a question. Who is the mastermind who comes up? Who's the mastermind behind all of it?
1: I will have to very quickly point the finger at, uh, our friend, uh, Paul flash, who I believe I, I don't, I wouldn't want to take credit where credit was not due. Uh, because I don't, I know I was, I was absolutely one of the merry pranksters that jumped into things like that, you know, whole, you know, both feet at the same time. But if I would have to, uh, you know, basically have the person that had the, you know, the, the absolute funny bone for the entire food and beverage operations team. It was our, uh, my good friend, Paul Flash, who's had, uh, oddly enough, he, when he introduced me to his brother that worked in um, ticketing, uh, he was one of the uh, top guys over in the ticketing group. His brother's name was Gordon. And so I really got a kick out. I just had to shake my head because, you know, his parents named him Gordon Flash. Instead of, you know, when you when you got the last name Flash, why not give your son the name Gordon? Uh, so but I believe Paul Flash, who I shared a uh, one of the larger cubicles with, who uh, also the first day that he met when Don Pritchard brought me around and I had my little my, the little blue name tag that went on the cube, side of the cubicle. And uh, he introduced me to Paul and Paul took one look at my last name. He goes, yeah, I'm not even trying that. I'm going to call you sweaty and stuck me. Within five seconds of me, of my first day at the Olympics has, you know, basically gave me a nickname that has stuck with me through my entire career through other with other other connections with other people. When they found out, you know, friends that I've worked with, it's I I, I immediately got stuck with the last name Shwetty because he wasn't going to even try to say the word swallow.
0: All right. Well, kudos to the flashes, both Paul and Gordon. I love it. I love it. Now, what else do you have? In your wonderfully formatted Word document.
1: Well, we did. So let's see. I'm trying to think of what. Uh, I mean, I've uh, covered the one where I drove in and uh, missed, you know, six south. So one well, of the ones in speaking to the people in Salt Lake City and in Utah and the absolute, you know, the 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 kind of the culture shock. When we drove, I drove with two, uh, two classmates from school, also took positions. Um, my friend Paul ran the, main, the food, uh, food and beverage operations at the main media center. And my friend Scott Gingrich uh, ran the food operations at the, uh, over at the um, E-Center. And I, I told him, I was like, you have no idea how lucky you have it that all of your food operations are built in. You know, you get you're you're walking into a concessions area and you literally have. I, I always wondered what he was doing all day while I was out there trying to build a build a uh, food and beverage operations out in us uh, out in a uh, state park. But um, we drove into town. We came across country. We literally left New York after graduation, drove across country with a 30 foot box truck and our vehicles. And we pulled into where we had rented an apartment in, uh, down in Sandy and back the truck up. And as we're starting to unload, all of a sudden we realized there's three or four people from the apartment complex are in the back of the truck, grabbing stuff and bringing stuff to our apartment. And Paul's from Chicago. I'd spent uh, a bunch of time recently in Las Vegas and we kind of were not, you know, we were trying to think, okay, we've got these strangers that are now grabbing our stuff. And what we found out was it was just people that lived there that were helping us. And so we let them, you know, they, they helped us move our stuff in, which, you know, instead of three guys moving stuff in, it was seven guys moving stuff in. So it went over twice as fast. And then as we finished up, we put an order in local order and for pizza. And I ran down to the corner to the convenience store, you know, got a, I think two cases of beer and we offered, you know, the guys that were helping us, we offered them beer and pizza and they 100% took us up on the pizza and very, you know, very politely declined, you know, let us know that they were members of the LDS church and they were, you know, it was what they did was, you know, if somebody's moving in, they, they helped, you know, and it was just a one, it was a fantastic introduction to the, the culture in Utah and in Salt Lake city. And a second story with that, you know we saw these guys, you know, we 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 became friends with the the people that were in the building really quickly. We had people that came by our apartment, knew that we had moved in, came by our apartment to see if we needed anything. If there was anything they could help us with, you know, suggestions for where it was a good places to go out to eat. And it was just absolutely fantastic. I, when I moved into a lot when I moved into my apartment in Las Vegas, <laughs> there was absolutely nothing like that at all. Uh, a second one kind of along that vein was uh we had a we had something something that came up and i'm not sure if don covered the entire story with the certified angus beef hot dogs but i think the third night of the olympics i would get back by the time i left the venue i was always the last person off the venue because we had the last truck that came out for the deliveries and i would get back to um the house that we rented uh, phil jordan had rented a uh a house in heber city where I think there were about 10 or 11 of us that were uh, on the venue at all times were staying in this house. And I would get there just in time to watch Bob Costas' fireside chats. And he made the comment on about the third night that the certified Angus beef hot dogs had been so popular that the Olympics was going to run out of them after three or four, after four or five days that the, you know, the amount that we'd ordered for 17 days was only going to last for four or five days. And because they were so popular and Phil Jordan immediately looked at me and said, yeah, I, you didn't tell me you're running out of hot dogs. I was like, I'm, I'm good. So I called Don Pritchard. I said, Hey, Don, I don't know what venues are running out of hot dogs, but I got plenty. So I can, you know, if I need to, I can throw some in the truck and I can get them to people. And Don just kind of gave me a, I'll tell you the story at the end. Of the, I'll tell you the story at the end of the Olympics. Just we're all good. Don't worry about it. If I need something, I will certainly call you. You know, you're just keep going with what you're going. And the next day on the venue, I I don't know how people got my number, but I started fielding calls from random people across the state of Utah that found out that the Olympics was running out of hot dogs, and I must have taken. I probably took 15 or 16 phone calls from concerned people that wanted to drive that they had leftover hot dogs at their house and in their pantries and they wanted to come and help. They wanted to make sure the Olympics wasn't going to run out of hot dogs. So I took about 15 or 16 phone calls from people that were going to donate hot dogs to us. And they they didn't, there was no, they didn't want to be able to get on the venue or anything. They were going to meet me, you know. If I can meet you in Heber City, I'll hand them off to you and we'll help out. And it was just a I just was—I just thought that was amazing, you know, for the amount of—I—I I, I don't know if the other food operators—I don't know if the other food operators' phone numbers got out there, but I know I took several calls from people that were offering to help with the uh, hot dog shortage that we were having for the Olympics.
0: All right. Well, I got a couple of comments there. Number one, people in Utah will do just about anything for pizza. Number two, I can just imagine the grandma calling and saying, well, I opened this package of Costco hot dogs and I I can't eat them all. I got like
1: six left. You
0: guys want them?
1: Well, it was I tell you what, it was just a well, the volunteers, some of the volunteers that I had that were working with me on the venue where it was the same thing. They're like, Hey, do we need to go, you know, do we need to go get hot dogs? I was like, no, we're fine. I showed them, I showed them the back of the truck You know, we had them in the back of one of our trucks. I was like, we're fine. I'm going to, I said, I'm going to, I, you know, and I, I didn't know what the story was. And, you know, I said, I'll find out, I'll find out at some point what it was. And then I, I completely slipped my mind to find out exactly what the issue was and why Bob Costas was saying we were out of hot dogs. So But it was just a it was just a, you know, everywhere we went, you were running into people that had a smile on their face and wanted to do something for you. And that was, like I said, moving, you know, moving in and having four random people that we'd never met before help us unload the truck at our apartment complex was just absolutely spectacular.
0: All right. Well, these are wonderful stories. Before we get to our final segment, do you have anything else, Carl, on your list that we need to get to?
1: Well, I tell you. So, one of the things I look for. I made friends with uh, uh, Ched Somala was our was the person. I'm not sure exactly what. I can't remember exactly what his position was. He was with. I believe he was with the telecom Group, but he was the announcer for the. You know, he was the stadium announcer for all the biathlon and all the uh, all the uh, cross country, and. I got to hear him uh, when I was watching the Olympics. I watched was watching one of the Olympic races in 2016 with one of the uh, with the women's um, like a women's relay team. And I realized it was Chad making the call for the first time that a an American team or an Americans had actually gotten a gold medal at an Olympics in a Nordic event at all. and being able to hear that, you know uh, 14 years later was absolutely fantastic you know hearing you know somebody that had such a passion for the sport and he was i could tell him he's very very low-key and when he was doing his announcing it was very professional sounding but he was about to uh, he was about to come out of his whatever booth he was in was probably not able to contain him as he was getting able to announce that uh an american team uh was going to win a gold medal uh, at a sport that he had been part of for, you know, decades and, you know, being able to have something like that, you know, from the past come back and being able to hear that and the excitement with, uh, you know, somebody that was part of our team in 2002, getting to see and getting to be part of something like that 14 years later was absolutely spectacular.
0: Earlier on in the podcast, you mentioned that you went to Las Vegas after the Salt Lake 2002 Mm -hmm. games were over. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did following the games in Salt Lake and what were some of the things that you learned while you were here in Salt Lake that you were able to apply in the work that you continue to
1: do in the future? Well, so I went after I when I graduated school, I actually uh, had already talked to Don and set up the position with SLOC uh, for 2001 and 2002. And then I also interviewed with uh, a gentleman named Buck Mathias, who was the uh, corporate director of uh, food operations for Harrow's Casinos. And uh, the interview went extremely well. I had been had some exposure to Las Vegas and food and beverage, and at actually hotel operations in Las Vegas. And I really enjoyed it. You know, the casino industry was uh, was very exciting, and a lot you know just a lot of people to deal with, and a you know a huge amount. And I let him know. I let Buck know that love to do the job, but I've got the opportunity to take a position with the Olympic committee for the Olympics in 2002. And he immediately stopped me and said, you have to, you, he said, I can postpone you for a year, take that job. He said, I did the same thing for the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. He said, I was an integral part. It was one of the best experiences that I've ever had in food and beverage operations. You, he said, I, in he said, if you come to work, Say you're going to come to work for me, and you don't take the position, I'm not going to hire you. So I ended up i left the i left the Olympics and went to uh, went to Las Vegas for about nine months and worked my way through the entire property at Harris Las Vegas. And what one of the things that I took away from you know a lot of the pre planning, you know, making sure that you were doing your planning and preparation correctly, you know, using your forecasting and things like that. And, you know, the ability to work with a large influx of people coming in all at the same time, you know, when you look at, you know, a buffet or a coffee's coffee shop in Las Vegas, you know, where they may have four or 5,000 people a day come through and seeing giant lines of people, you know, working on, you know, working on some of the logistics on line reduction and making it so people can go through quicker was one of the things I was able to take from, uh, take from the Olympic, you know, my Olympic experience. Um, and we didn't do, you know, for the Olympics, we didn't do a lot of fine dining. There was not any tableside service whatsoever. It was just making sure that we were able to get people, you know, getting the logistics of people through the lines as quickly as possible so they could get back to watch, you know, basically to watching their events. And that was the, you know, that was the key is making sure that you weren't frustrating people that, hey, I paid a lot of money for this ticket, but now all I'm seeing is the inside of a tent or all I'm seeing is a, uh, a, a concessions area. I really, you know, we we wanted to make sure that we were doing everything we possibly could so that people were able to watch what they what they actually came to see. All right. Fantastic.
0: Well, are we ready to go to our final segment, Carl? Absolutely. OK, let's do it. Our first question for you is about music. So. Have you thought about a song or a musical group that you listened to while you were working at Sloc? and whenever you hear them today, it reminds you of your time in 2002?
1: <laughs> well, I tell you what, oddly enough, it was uh, so Kathy Harper, who was the lead for the media, put together a she put together a, um, a soundtrack for Soldier Hollow that I still have. I don't have the disc. I ruined the disc years ago, but I have a list of the songs. So she put together a soundtrack and it was very specific songs for different groups of people. And although she had one for me, which I've got to put my glasses on to be able to read it. Um, the song she had for me was uh, uh, La Poisson's from Disney. And it says, uh, you know, Carl in the Kitchens was the, uh, you know, from one of the Disney, but my favorite song from that was uh, Baz Lerman did a, like a, a spoken word, song set to music called wear sunscreen. And that was the one that hit me because the, I think the first day that we were there with all the, you know, we were, you know, it was, we got the snow, but it was absolutely beautiful weather. And I got sunburned on my face and the, you know, we had our, um, our, uh, Cindy, who was our HR head of HR out there had, had made a point, you know, we had you know, plenty of sunscreen, make sure you're wearing your sunscreen. I don't want somebody to get hurt. And it was kind of a running joke with me that, Hey, you know, the one person that's not paying attention, human resources suggest wear sunscreen. But the, if you listen to the Baz Lerman, um, it's, it's him giving a, uh, a, a commencement address and they set it to music. And it's just something, whenever I hear it, it just brings back the Olympics because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't wear sunscreen. I wore sunscreen the rest of the time. I did not wear sunscreen the first
0: day. All right. Well, lesson learned, right? Put on the sunscreen. I'll see if we can find that track on Spotify, and if we can, we'll put it up there. Sometimes, if I cannot find it on Spotify, I'm able to find it on YouTube. It's.
1: I think it's a pretty. It's a pretty popular. I've seen it before in a lot of places. And when it coming around graduation time, because it was actually part of a graduation address, it tends to get tends to get a little bit more popularity. But every time I hear it, it just brings back. It brings back the memories of, I should have listened to uh, my, my human resources team and wore sunscreen. All right. Well, we'll give a shout
0: out to Cindy and the HR team and the workforce team yeah. for giving that great advice. Now, we've been talking about food all day, but mm-hmm. we do have a food question what was a favorite place to eat? A favorite restaurant that you like to frequent? It could have been in Heber there near Soldier Hollow or maybe it's down in Salt Lake.
1: I tell you what, we had, I had two that I really liked and it was one of them was the Trolley Wing Company because that was the first place I ever went uh, when I, when I, first place I came when I came to uh, Salt Lake. And then I really liked the, uh, the Market Street Oyster Bar. Um, It was just something where, you know, when you're thinking the middle of uh, Utah, you're not really thinking good seafood or good oysters and it was very good seafood, but it was just a, kind of a place that was a little bit more upscale from what we were used to. And it was a place to go where we just had a, we just had a a really good amount of fun. And so those were kind of the two places that really stuck out. Uh, You know, we would, every once in a while, we'd go across the street to the uh, Bambara at the hotel. Monaco uh, was one, if you were doing some, if you were trying to entertain or show, uh, one of my one of the girls that was a good friend of mine that came into town to see me when I was in Salt Lake when I wanted to uh, show off a little bit. I think I I took her over to the hotel to the uh, Bombara and had a good meal over there uh, downtown Salt Lake. So, but Trolley Wing Company and the Market Street Oyster Bar were the two that I really remember. Uh, you know, just having really uh, just a lot of. It was more the ambiance and the group of people that I was with and the fun that we had.
0: Well, we'll definitely put those on our map now. I have to ask you the same question that I asked Don Pritchard, being the food and beverage guy. Yep. Is there something specific that was served on your venue that was your favorite dish?
1: We, I liked, I really liked, uh, and I think Don used this one too. the The chili that we did was just absolutely, was just really, really good. It was just something where, you know, once you were out in the, uh, and I, if I remember correctly, I was getting the group to make whip some up right off the bat in the morning, because that was the coldest, you know, five or four 5 o'clock, 530, five 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 thirty five 30 or six o'clock in the morning, right after, you know, right. As these right before the sun was coming up was the coldest part of the day. And I'm not a hot coffee drinker, but when I was out there and trudging through the snow and trying to get things set up and realizing that, I, you know, I probably should have put my jacket on because it was colder outside than I remembered, you know, we were, you know, we would go for something hot and, you know, chili at, uh, you know, it, it made a good, I, I, I had a few times where I had that as a breakfast chili in the morning and that was just very, it was just a really, really tasty and really hit the spot.
0: I'm a big fan of breakfast chili. So yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that food memory. And speaking of memories, we're now to our final question for you. You've shared so many great stories already, but <laughs> is there a particular moment that For you, just encapsulates what the Salt Lake 2002
1: games were all about. I tell you, I didn't, with the amount of stuff that we were having to do during the actual Olympic Games, I didn't get, aside from seeing things in passing, I really didn't get the opportunity to stand and watch a lot of the competition. You know, I knew they were going on because I can hear the shooting out of the, you know, the shooting in the biathlon stadium and things like that. Where I got the opportunity to watch because it was a lot more low key, which was unfortunate when we transitioned to the Paralympics and it was a shame that so few people came out as spectators to watch because it was just, I i, I got to get my cameras out and I got tons of pictures, but I got to actually got the opportunity because we were so, so much more low key on the food services I got to sit in the stadium and watch the competition where you had people that were doing the cross country course, but in sledges and on mono skis. And people that had, you know, were, you know, uh, had issues with their sight there where they were, you you know, somebody that was blind that was doing the cross country skiing behind a uh you know, somebody that was leading them through where they had, you know, clickers or they were making noise so that they could follow them and being able to watch the Paralympians that just went out and just destroyed the course. I mean, it was a you know, when you see when you see cross country on television, the people when you're watching it, usually when you're watching it, it's a World Cup event or it's an Olympic event. So you're seeing the best people in the world. They make it look so easy. And you had, I mean, out on our course, we had uh Hermods Hill and we did, I went out on cross country skis one time and realized a with, you know, since I'm built like a defensive lineman for an NFL team, I really needed water ski skis to cross country ski on, but you're seeing somebody that's on a, on a mono ski or somebody that's on a sledge that is doing, you know, basically doing the cross country course as part of the Paralympics. And then I got to, I got the opportunity also to go and watch the, uh, U S hockey Paralympic hockey team play in at the E center. And it was just watching, watching those events was just spectacular. I mean, it just brought in, you know, those were, those were the true, you know, those were the true heroes because look, you know, just watching what they were doing and some of the things that they had overcome just made, you know, that was the, for me, that was the spirit in completely embodied, that was the spirit of the Olympics was watching people that were doing that was just was just amazing.
0: I'm really glad that you brought up the Paralympic Games because you're right. Those athletes are amazing. They are real athletes and they can do things that I could only dream of doing. And I have to say that in recent years, the Paralympic Games have become a lot more popular for spectators, uh, having been in both Rio and in Pyeongchang recently during the Paralympic Games themselves. The way that they priced tickets, they made it very family friendly, yeah. very very affordable, and so the stands were packed with people. Uh, when I, you know, went to see sledge hockey there in Pyeongchang, um, it it was absolutely amazing. And so, so thank you very much for bringing that memory to our attention, Carl. And thank you very much for giving up an hour of your day. I really appreciate <laughs> it. It's been wonderful to hear all of these stories. Now, if people want to connect with you, learn more about the things that you're doing these days or share some Salt Lake 2002 memories, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, either by Gmail or I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook. So it's uh, all you have to do is search for Carl, K-A-R-L, and swallow S-C-H-W-O-L-O-W on Facebook. I am the only person, uh, as far as I know, I'm the only person in the world that's uh, got that name spelling. So. If you search Swallow on Facebook, you're going to find me or you're going to find members of my family. And then it's uh, CarlSwallow at gmail.com. So it's, you know, I would love for some of the people that I have kind of lost track of over the last few years, I mean, I'm going to friends with everybody. I think everybody that I've mentioned in this interview today, I'm actually friends with on Facebook and I'm hoping they get to see it. I really would like to, uh, you know, we're, I think we've been looking at potentially doing a, uh, some sort of you know, 20-year anniversary get-together in Salt Lake City, I think that would be a lot of fun is if anybody's doing a 20-year anniversary in Salt Lake City, you know, in 2022 would be, I think a lot of people would love to see each other and, you know, have a good, you know, that way we could we could just go out and it would not be the pressure of having to put on the Olympics or, you know, for us having to deal with the, uh, you know, some of the things, the 9-11 components that went on and then some of the security components that we had to put in place. So, But I think uh, I think that might be a lot of fun as well. But I keep track. I've got a lot of friends that were on, you know, a lot of friends on that I'm friends with on Facebook that I met through uh, through the Olympic experience that I would never have met before. And that's that was the key component was all that was basically the people, the people and the memories of those people that I took out of it was exactly what you know, it's exact. it's it's been a lot of fun in the last couple of weeks as I'm listening to the podcasts and listening to people that I know. And hearing them, you know, some of them I've, you know, been online with and seen them on Facebook or everything else, but I haven't talked to them. And, uh, you know, it's been a, I've gotten a, I've gotten a real kick out of hearing what their memories were and their experiences as well.
0: All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate it. And yeah, hopefully we, COVID permitting, could have another 20 year anniversary. That would be a lot of fun to get back together. So thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll talk to you again next week. Carl, thank you.
1: All right, Christian, thank you very much and have a great afternoon.